The thing I keep coming back to in this case is the time leading up to Judy McFarland's disappearance. There was an unattributed note in the original investigation that said Judy seemed upset. She was in trouble. She had to come up with a lot of money. She knew she couldn't. She needed to get a hold of Jim. He was out of the country. She did not indicate who the money was owed to. And I just have this feeling that that had to be something beyond being a single mom with four kids to provide for. Because she was already taking the steps to get back on her feet. She was getting her degree. She was sober. She'd found a church. But this sounds like she was in a state of constant desperation and might have been willing to do just about anything to change her circumstances. With all the horrible things happening in her life, from her husband being deported and her having no means of income and no way to support her family and her house burning to the ground, she was considering doing a load of drugs at that point. What was so big that she was frantic and desperate? Who did she owe money to? What was it for? And did any of the answers kill her? I'm Haley Holloway, and this is Shallow Graves. So the family that you've spoken to seems pretty split between Jim McFarlane and Bobby Norris. Yes. Who's on your list? I've taken you through almost everyone Detective Allen's looked into in his investigation, and we focused on his big three. Judy's husband, her sister's partner, and her Bible study teacher. But there are just a couple of things I want to add to each of their profiles for context. We started with Judy's husband, right, Jim McFarland, who was assumed to have been in Canada when Judy disappeared as he'd been deported. Though I do think it's worth mentioning that in the week before Judy died, she had been trying to get a hold of him. And according to Judy's cousin Mary, Jim's mom said he was out of the country. So we don't really know where he was. But we do know he only adhered to his deportation restrictions sometimes. He even told Detective Allen about the times he drove back down to Florida after Judy disappeared with no issues. And it has been suggested that Jim, who had a twin brother, by the way, would have had access to another passport if needed. Though I don't know of any evidence that he ever tried to go down that route, or if he even needed to. But there are a couple of other things that stick out in my mind when it comes to Jim McFarlane. One is that several people reported to the original investigators that there was a custody battle going on between Jim and Judy. I just looked him right in the eye, and he was about as calm as could be, and he basically said, there's nothing further from the truth. I had been deported to Canada. I had no money. I really had no decent place to stay. I had no means of supporting those boys, and I really didn't want any part of it. I think that whole motive kind of went out the window when I interviewed him. I believed him. The other thing, and I found this part really odd, is that Judy's probation officer said Judy had been trying to get into Canada to be with her husband. She had been for a long time, but she couldn't because of her probation. The part that's weird is that Judy's probation officer said it was obvious to her that Jim didn't want Judy up there, and he was not helping her with the process at all. But Judy still worked with the officer to get an early end to the probation, which came through at the end of December 1991. 
Even with all of that in mind, when Detective Allen flew up to interview Jim at his home in Canada, he felt strongly that Judy's husband was not connected to her death. Jim McFarlane, I'd be comfortable clearing him as a suspect. Hmm. You know, if uh, if I was going to write a final report on that, I think I put in my draft of reports so far. It, it, it just doesn't fit for me having talked to him. So then we had these two guys in Judy's life who'd had pretty violent arrest histories. Bobby Norris, as you know, is my number one suspect. This is the one I've heard about the most from some of you following along. And his possible motive that he might have wanted to pay back Judy for sending him to jail for a year and a half is probably the most compelling in this case. But I found something out about Bobby that I hadn't heard before. Both of Judy's sisters talked to me about how Bobby had loved Judy. Even Jeanette, who ended up with Bobby, said he'd actually wanted to be with Judy first. He originally loved Judy. Originally, Bobby fell in love with my sister Judy, but she was with Jim. She didn't want nothing to do with him. And remember, Bobby Norris had been in the house while the girls were growing up, so they all knew him really well. And Nancy, the oldest of the sisters, uses that lens when looking at Bobby. Honestly, I know people said Robert Norris, I know he was a bad guy, but I also know that he loved my sister and I don't believe he killed her. I don't think that whether Bobby loved or was in love with Judy or not affects his possible involvement one way or the other. But does it give a different motivation for how he behaved or how vocal he was after her disappearance? I wish Bobby Norris was alive. I would love to sat across from him to talk to him about it, but he was deceased by the time I got involved in this. Mm -hmm. And then we have Judy's Bible study teacher. Um requires some additional investigation and interviews. This is the guy who seems to have changed his story about the last time he saw Judy, was rumored to be sleeping with his students, and had allegedly beaten up and threatened to kill his wife, resulting in a domestic violence arrest. And he's probably the person Detective Allen and I have talked about the most. We both feel something is off here. Not necessarily because he had anything to do with what ended up happening to Judy, but from his original interviews to the last time he talked with Detective Allen and then with me, and then his aggression. There's just something not right there, and the detective feels there's more to look into. I'm kind of thinking I want to try to catch him someday with his significant other or someone that means mm-hmm. something important to him and you know, kind of revisit this issue where he would be inclined to voluntarily give his DNA to show that he's cooperating in this investigation. I found in 10 years of doing this, it really gives you insight into a suspect. After you're interviewing them and you've got their version down pat, which cannot change too much at that point, and said, oh, then you'd have no trouble with submitting DNA that we can compare from the crime scene. You were never at the victim's house, correct? Mm. And then it's still only about 10% since I've been here said, no, I'm not giving you DNA. Then we have a suspect, or really a category of suspects, that kind of like the drug smuggling I've been putting off adding to the podcast. What about the swingers? I never put much credibility in that. I don't know if she ever acted upon it. I think that was, for lack of a better description, her ace in the hole. Mm. She just couldn't come up with money any other way. After her husband Jim had been arrested and the smuggling days were over, Judy's sisters mentioned that in an effort to bring in more money, Judy was considering sex work. 
And it appears she did take out an ad in a swingers magazine, as well as a new P.O. box. And she was getting letters in the mail from men responding to the ad. To me, that just verified that Judy was kind of at the end of the rope for her, you know, from a financial standpoint. The fact that she was considering smuggling for the cartel and then prostituting herself, she was in a bad spot. And Jim McFarland sent the letters he found to the sheriff's office back then, and he had picked out this guy, I think his name was Don, and Jim McFarland suggested that should be the prime suspect. Jim McFarland mailed these letters into the sheriff's office, five of them, in 1993, more than a year after Judy had been killed. And he said that when he got in possession of Judy's van after her death, he found one of the five on the console, like she'd just recently opened it and read it. He said she'd printed, I wrote on the envelope, and added that the sheriff's office should look into its offer. Yeah, boy, thanks for pointing that out to me. So the letters that we obtained from the ad that Judy placed in the newspaper actually came from her husband, Mm -hmm. Jim McFarland. And I do have a couple of those uh, Mm -hmm. letters here. You would think today those would be people to look at, yeah? Yes. I'm with Detective Allen in thinking that more than anything, this scenario screams desperation. That Judy was in such a bad place, she was willing to try anything to find more money. We don't know if Judy ever actually met up with any of these guys or that they'd have had anything to do with their death, though it seems pretty unlikely to me because all of the letters were postmarked in 1989 or 1990, so at least two years before Judy disappeared. But I think you still have to consider the possibility. Suppose she set up a rendezvous. I mean, it'd be really dangerous for her to do that where she lived. But if she did get rid of the kids for Mm -hmm. a few days or a week or something like that, then maybe she would have been more inclined to use her primary residence for purposes of prostitution. I hadn't even thought about that. Hey, I got a list of suspects. Yeah, you know, it's funny, but every time you and I work a case together, when we come back with a fresh set of eyes, it gets us both thinking and it gives us more leads. I have one more of those for you. One more lead that's been left virtually untouched, though I think it could be the biggest, maybe the most relevant thing I've found since I started looking into Judy's case. This, I think, is so fascinating. Okay. There was a security guard who lived in Judy's complex. Oh, is this the the Lincoln? Yes. It's all the Lincoln, yeah. Yeah, we never ID'd that car, did we? Well, no, and it was fascinating because it seems like Judy said it was not a nice area, high crime, that kind of thing. And not once, but twice, the security guard saw some fancy black Lincoln town car or Cadillac with tinted out windows, car phone in 1992, like all of it, parked at Judy's the night she disappeared. This story from the security guard in Judy's neighborhood was in the original investigation, and it spans two nights. On Sunday evening, the night before Judy's last Bible study, the security guard told detectives he'd seen this big black Lincoln town car or Cadillac in relatively new condition parked right by Judy's place. And the reason it caught his attention was that he could hear whoever was in the car dialing a car phone over the speakers. Judy didn't have a phone, by the way, so whoever was in that car wasn't calling her. But the next night, Monday, around 10 o'clock, so not long after Judy's Bible study ended, the security guard said he saw that same car parked at Judy's again. 
This time, he said a woman who fit Judy's description came out of the shadows by her trailer and got into the passenger seat. When they drove off, the security guard said the windows were down and he could see the driver, who he described as a white male in his 20s with shoulder-length black hair. He'd never seen the car other than those two nights, and detectives didn't note finding anyone else who'd seen it at all. And we never identified who was driving that vehicle. Well, it doesn't sound like it could be anyone we've been talking about. Here's why I think this piece is so big. First, if that was Judy McFarlane, that would mean she made it home from her Bible study and had then gotten in a car on her own to leave her house. And then that would have been the actual last time anyone reported seeing her alive. But the other reason it's big is that this fancy black car with tinted windows, a soft roof, and a car phone didn't belong to any of the people we've looked into. Jim's in Canada. Bobby Norris wouldn't have that kind of car. James Arnett didn't have that kind of car. We would know what car had. They would have known back then. That's why I always go back to the drug trafficking. Well, it's funny. When you said that, I went more back to the swingers. Technically, I don't know what kind of car the Bible study teacher drove, and I'm pretty positive no one looked into that back then. But James Arnett drove a blue truck, Jim McFarlane drove a red truck, and if this was for sure that Monday night, Bobby Norris wasn't even out of jail yet. And you sure it was a black Cadillac? Mm. He said Lincoln Town Car okay. or Cadillac with tinted windows and a car cell phone. I know we've never identified the driver of that vehicle, but the fact that it, maybe it was possibly one of the swingers, maybe that guy, Don, that, that's worth looking into. Okay, one more thing that I think throws a wrench into an already overly complicated case. Let's talk about these house fires. Because what are the odds? A few weeks before Judy goes missing, her entire large family home burns to the ground. And then her husband and her shared a lake house or whatever. And it also burned to the ground. This brings us to two full house fires within four months of each other. And they were both homes Judy lived in. The one she shared with her husband and her mom's place. Both of them complete losses, and they bookended her disappearance. The one at her mom's was late December of 91. Judy went missing in mid-January, and then Jim and Judy's cowpen lake house burned down in late April. This case is so wild, just her disappearance and where she was found, but it, that it's marked by house fires. That has to be interesting to you at a minimum. Yes, and I don't know what the link was. Obviously, I don't know who was responsible for either of them, or even if they were arson. Is that possible to accidental house fires? I guess it's possible. <laughs> surrounding this kind of a murder case? Uh, highly unlikely, but possible. So if they're linked, what could that even mean? another outside party is involved or someone who we mentioned already was responsible for both and then what's their motive there's no reasonable explanation like i said to you when we first started talking about it, it's the greatest mystery i've read the second house fire was also ruled accidental but this time there was only one person inside james arnett 
The family friend who'd introduced Judy to her church, the one who'd discovered she was missing, and the only person to have been in both of these house fires. Is James Arnett somebody who's on a list of interest? I think you have to say yes. If he is to be considered, I mean, what would even a motive be? I can't think of a motive for Jim Arnett unless he also was romantically involved with Judy and you know that just became a, uh, a bad thing. I think when I asked him about that he said he knew Judy you know pretty well but he more had a crush on Jeanette. But that is so weird that you know he was the one to walk in her apartment and see if she was gone and he just happened to be in two full house fires. Yeah. Related to the family. I wonder what the statistical probability is of being in two houses that burned to the ground within six months of one another. Yes. And to be the person who introduced Judy to the church. Mm -hmm. But you know, the fact that Jim Arnett was at two houses that burned to the ground and was so close to Judy and her family at that point is highly suspicious and it had to be investigated and I'm very glad I flew to Texas to interview him. So is he on on a list at all anymore? Not in my mind, no. Okay. I thought this was interesting. The flyer, when Judy went missing, said she was last seen wearing a pink sweatsuit. And the medical examiner wrote that she was found in jeans and a white shirt with fruit on it. I think there's just one more piece of this case I haven't told you about yet, and I barely noticed it when I was going through the case. But when I read the flyer Judy's family had made when she disappeared, I found a discrepancy between what Judy was last reported to be seen in, what was put on the flyer, and what she was found in. Hmm. Well, I don't know who put out the flyer, but uh, the ME would definitely have, you know, what she was last seen wearing. Sure, sure. But I thought that was interesting. She must have gone home to change. I never noticed that. Huh, a bright pink suit type outfit. There are, of course, no notes about who gave this last scene and outfit description, but on the missing person flyer that the family made, it says citizens had called in saying they saw a woman who looked like Judy wearing a bright pink sweatsuit type of outfit near the church. And people who actually knew Judy said she wore a fuzzy pink sweatshirt all the time, and so that tracks. And it matters because it feeds into the theory that Judy might have made it home from church that she'd walked home in the rain and maybe changed clothes. It also makes it feel like she knew she was going somewhere afterward. Because if we ride with this theory for a second, Judy didn't get home after 9 p.m. and then change into her pajamas. She put on tights with jeans, some sort of top with brightly colored fruit all over it, and tennis shoes. I've never noticed that till now. Well, that's a great observation. Well, she might have gone home. Could have. And it certainly seems the security guard, I think he said he saw somebody with her build that night um, when he saw the black Cadillac. And so maybe she wasn't picked up on the street and, and something happened to her. Well, I never considered it as an option that she had made it home, changed clothes, and then something happened to her. Yeah, I've, just gone, now. I've gone down the trail. Wow. Good for you, Haley. Wow. Well, I mean, there, it could be totally wrong. Yeah, but, but you I just could be right. 
But either option, hot pink, brightly colored fruit, whatever Judy was wearing was loud. It was noticeable. And that brings me back to the pond because I'm still having such a hard time with the fact that no one reported seeing Judy. And I know that in the last episode, I talked about how hard it would have been for a regular Gainesville resident just walking or driving by to have noticed something or someone by that pond. But what about the Department of Transportation's lawn crew? Because when detectives pulled the records for the last time the retention pond had been mowed, they found that a crew had been there before that day in June of 92 when they found Judy's skeleton. In fact, the records showed they'd been out there about five months earlier. On January 21st of 92, eight days after Judy disappeared, And no one reported seeing the pink or the fruit, let alone a body in that pond, which I have to imagine was pretty shallow because it was the winter. And then what about the searches in the woods? Both the one the sheriff's office did and the ones where Judy's loved ones said they went through the wooded areas. I still want to know how they got that body over that fence. And nobody found it when they did the first search when it was so close to her house. You pull up a Google map of the address where she lived and the pond where they found her, I could probably throw a baseball into it. Remember, Judy's sister Nancy had had a baby right after Judy disappeared, so she couldn't be at the search that the sheriff's office did. And that makes this part even harder for her to swallow. If they truly did a grid search, they truly have police officers and people helping wanting to find her, how come they couldn't get through the fence but someone else could get her over that? But I don't know that they'd wanted to get through the fence or even how close they got to it. Because I found an article from after Judy's body was found that said while the sheriff's office had searched those woods, the retention pond, which was about three quarters of a mile from Judy's house, was not included in the search, which doesn't make any sense to her family. But her body was found within walking distance of where she lived. They did a grid search. And they didn't find her body then? It's been suggested by those who believe Judy's body went over the fence that it wasn't seen because it wasn't just resting on the edge of the pond like when it was found, but instead weighed down by something to keep the body underwater, which would mean whoever put her in the pond also went over the fence. So first they had to get Judy's body up and over a six-foot fence plus the barbed wire, which would mean she was dropped or thrown, right? And there were no broken bones, by the way. And even though some of her clothing had disintegrated in the water, there weren't any reports of tears or holes either. But anyway, after getting the body and a weight inside the fence and then also going over the fence, the suspect would have then had to drag the body into the pond and MacGyver away to weigh it down. And then somehow that weight was eventually discarded and Judy's body would have floated up and over to the edge of the pond, but still in the shape of the body. I I just, I don't go with the theory of putting her over that fence. That is a hell of a lift to get her over that fence and get her into that pond. Chain link fence isn't much to get over, but when that gets that bob bar like that, you've got to come out or around and over. Detective Kenny Mack was at the pond the day that Judy's body was found, so he's very familiar with the scene and what they found. And remember, the sheriff's office had had the pond drained so they could see what else was in the bottom. Like I said, once they got over that fence, if that's the theory, somebody had to come over with her and get her into the pond. And then they had to weight her down. They had to get her out of sight. There was no evidence of that there. 
There was no rope, no concrete blocks, no heavy object to weight her down. And maybe all of this is perfectly plausible, but I haven't heard a single theory from anyone who suggests the over-the-fence method that explains how Judy's bones were scraped up. Which had to be significant. You know, if she'd have been alive when somebody drug her, that, that, you know, the skin may have got torn up, but when we found her, there was no skin. There was damage to the bone, which would indicate that she was already started decomposing when she was washed down that, that culvert. You know, the bare bone rubbing on the concrete. Well, that adds credence to that theory. But then it seems we're only left with the storm drain theory, which also seems inconceivable. And several people have raised a very valid question of how there could have ever been enough water to push a body that would have likely been dropped into a manhole through a concrete culvert and eventually into that pond. Again, still in the same shape of her body. Where she would have been in the storm drain, would there have been moisture in there, water? Yes, when, okay. when every time it rains, okay. water comes in there. Okay. So when it rained and the water hit the road, it drained down and into the pond. Okay. Okay. And if I can remember correctly, that was very wet in there at the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Very wet in there. I've been really curious about this, so I did some research into Gainesville's rain totals from that year, thinking it could help us gauge whether or not this was even possible. And I found that the month before Judy's body was found, so June of 92, was one of the wettest Junes Gainesville, Florida has ever seen. I went back to the 1800s and I could only find one June that had seen more rain before that June of 92. In total, more than 30 inches of rain fell in Gainesville in the five months Judy was missing. And almost 13 of those inches fell the month before her body was discovered in the locked pond. My theory is that the reason that she doesn't get found quick enough, somebody walking down that sidewalk, see her floating there, that's winter time. She's washed in there. She's at the bottom of that pond. And as she decomposes, she gets air and she floats to the top. Part of the process. I mean, we go find bodies in lakes. They're underwater for four or five days and they heat up and, and expand inside her body and then float. Mm -hmm. So that could have been why. And it was winter time so they don't get, you know, they don't decompose as fast. So It almost can't wrap my mind around uh, it. Me neither, but you know, the evidence is there that she had post-mortem damage to her body from what Maples described as concrete. And that would make sense, the culvert's concrete. You know what, I think you just totally changed my mind because yesterday Detective Allen had me on the truck theory. Mm -hmm. But you're right about the post-mortem concrete was like on her face and her femur. Mm -hmm. It totally makes, because there's no concrete in the retention pond. No, no. And, you know, she's stuck down in there, she's out of sight, she starts decomposing. Although it's, you know, January, it's cold, it's not as quick, it takes her a while get small enough to get into the pond. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, it is very strange, very strange. I'm wondering, after this entire season, if there's anything about Judy's disappearance and death that we all agree on. 
I've heard so many theories and opinions from people involved in this case and listeners about who might be responsible, why Judy died, and how in the world she got in that pond. But the one thing I haven't heard any differing thoughts on is whether Judy McFarlane was murdered. The big question that slowed down the investigation when she was missing and then stopped it after she'd been found isn't even up for discussion today. Of course, Judy was murdered. So then why was her murder in this chapter of high-profile murder cases in Gainesville pushed aside and completely forgotten by the sheriff's office, never even put on the cold case list? I've been kind of sick over that case because... I did this whole podcast on that chapter in Gainesville and never came across her. I mean, I covered stories that weren't related to Paul, and she was smack dab in the middle of them. And I missed her. It feels like a lot of Gainesville missed her. And I can't figure out how that happened. Well, from my perspective, it is unacceptable that there was little or no investigation that I can determine occurred here after her body was discovered. Unfortunately, in our business, and maybe even you know, out in the real world too, when someone is a, quote, high-risk victim, that their cases just aren't worked with the same tenacity as legitimate victims. I fear the same thing you fear about Judy's case, that, you know, since no one was really banging on our door demanding justice, for Judy, we didn't choose to do that ourselves. When Detective Allen first told me about Judy's case, I didn't think there was any way I could cover her story. And not because it was so complicated or there was nothing to work off of, both of which were valid issues, but because I went through her case and I read about the swinger letters and the drug trafficking and the probation and the church and the people who were surrounding her at this time in her life, these things she was doing out of desperation. And I could not stomach the idea of bringing her story to an audience that might pick it all apart, with even one person discounting what happened to her because of the other circumstances in her life. I knew that if I took on her case, I had to tell it all. And if I told it all, then what? And so I had this very candid conversation over and over for more than a year with my family, with my team, and with Detective Allen. This is from March of 2021. I'm 85% sure I'm going to do her case. Excellent. I'm really concerned that the general public won't care about her. Mm. There is a history of people kind of throwing away people like Judy McFarlane and saying, well, she was in the drug trafficking world. She was listed as a prostitute. She sent her kids to somebody else. The list you know. is long and I am concerned that people will victim blame her say that she deserved it or what you know what do you expect and not care about what happened to her well you know another thing comes to mind for me when you mention that that you know we're kind of wondering why there wasn't much of an investigation after they found the body there's a school of thought an old school of thought in this business and I think it just comes from being around too much of this a lot of times police get kind of desensitized to the victims and there comes kind of a trait to kind of blame the victim you know for what happened and I I wonder 
when this information came forward, if as a result of our victim being involved in smuggling and then possibly into prostitution, regardless of the intent, you know, mm-hmm. to pay the bills for her and her children, I just wonder if that made it go to the back burner a little sooner as opposed sure. to later. Sure, sure. Just maybe they were jaded to the asking for it mentality. But you have to wonder when you're looking at this time period and you've got beautiful blonde young Tiffany Sessions who her dad was on top of her image in what was put out. Beth Foster who's college student reading a book and in the middle you have this unheard of drug smuggling possible sex worker who some thought she just left on her own. I can understand in hindsight what might have happened. And maybe Kenny Mack would speak better to that because he was around back then. But when I went to talk with Detective Mack about Judy's case and what happened to it, it turned out my first assumptions didn't paint the full picture. And in fact, he told me a couple of things that shifted my perspective, at least some. Tell me about how the case cooled off. I just wanted to... Well, like I said, She's reported missing, and, and Sergeant Eckert's squad did a, a fairly decent job of doing running down, you know, who last saw her, her background, and contacting her family and everything. So we relied very heavily on that missing person, and that came up no leads available. We do the autopsy. We're trying to say how she died, and due to the state of the body, they can't say how she was killed. Obviously, she wasn't shot. There's no bone damage where, where a bullet had struck the bone. Strangulation, the hyoid bone was not there. Either fell in the, in the bottom of that muck or disintegrated because it's a very small bone, so you couldn't say it's strangulation. Mm-hmm. Wasn't enough tissue to determine, you know, throat was cut or anything. All they come up with was damage from concrete. Wow. Scrapes on the bones. So in the state of Florida, if you can't prove how she died, then you couldn't charge anybody. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yes. So however she got there, it was the perfect story. Yes. So it went cold. And then Detective Mack pointed out one of the things I've struggled with most in how Judy's case was handled compared to the others at that time. Because to me, she was one of nine missing or murdered Gainesville residents in that four-year chunk of time. But to the sheriff's office, and maybe even to some of Gainesville, it might have seemed like there were two different categories, not one. When, when this was going on, was there much pressure from the media about Judy McFarland's? No, surprisingly there wasn't. There wasn't. She wasn't a student and didn't raise a lot of, I mean, there was a few inquiries by the local press, but not, not near as much as it had been with the students. Because I noticed that in some of the newspaper articles that Judy's friends and family were quite upset about the attention Tiffany and Beth were getting and that Judy didn't quite get so much. Yeah, correct. What do you think that was about? Well, students, that's the lifeblood of this community is the University of Florida. Here you have a a victim who had a questionable background. And I don't know if you've read any of Detective Allen's uh, reports. She was had a dysfunctional family. I mean, you could take that report and name probably 10 people in a report that had a motive mm-hmm. or, or 
seemed capable of murdering her and disposing of the body. Do you have to prioritize cases at that point? Yes, every, I mean, every department has to. General investigations, you get work them to a point, and that's where the cold case squad will come in. It's very helpful. Detective Allen, he's very thorough in his investigation, did a lot of work on it, where a normal investigative unit wouldn't have that time to do it. While they're doing all that investigative work, you know, they're still getting cases piled on them. Uh, Kevin's very, very thorough. And when he writes a report, it isn't the facts, it's, it's <laughs> in-depth. It's in-depth, it's like reading a book. So, you know, that's, that's very good on a cold case. You know, it gives background. Somebody picks it up 10 years from now, they got a lot more than what they used to have. I think it's truly incredible that Judy's case was basically rediscovered and got a second chance. That a sheriff, Sadie Darnell, who'd been deeply impacted by this dark chapter in Gainesville, was able to pull Detective Allen out of retirement to solely work on her county's very old and very cold cold cases. And that when Judy's sister Nancy called the Alachua County Sheriff's Office for what must have felt like the millionth time, she finally found someone who would also care about Judy. He is the first actual police officer from the Lutchway County Sheriff's Office that treated me like he really felt Judy was a person. Hmm. She did exist. And what happened to her was wrong, and he was going to go out of his way to help me. He is the best of the best. Um, I've said to many people, if anything happened to me or a loved one, I would hope that, that Kevin was on it. He's something else. And you're right, he truly cares. But unfortunately, this was the last case Detective Allen reopened for the Alachua County Sheriff's Office. Because while I was working on this season, he retired. And so this is where Judy's case sits. It's still unsolved, but it's been investigated and brought to the light. Finally, next to all of Alachua County's other victims with unsolved cases. After 10 years and dozens of cold cases, Detective Allen's legacy at the sheriff's office is unmistakable. But I think the impact he had on the families of the county's cold case victims, so many of them finally getting closure and feeling like someone still cared about their person, will outlast his record of closed cases. I'm curious after all the times you've talked with Kevin over the years, if that's changed your feelings on what happened to Judy or who might have been involved and and kind of what you think now. He gave me a better perspective so I feel better about what happened. Because of him, I have a little forgiveness in my heart. Hmm. I still feel there's something not right on her case. Hmm. On how I was treated on how the police did, it's just too weird. And I've come to the realization that I'll never know what happened to my sister until I die and go see her. And that's just how it is. And she'll tell me about it and I'll understand. That must be really difficult to sit with, to believe you'll never know. No, because even though I'm not real religious and I don't go to church all the time, I know that I'm a good person. And in my eyes, I will see her again. Mm. And then I'll truly know. And that's how I accept it. That's beautiful. I would like to know, Nancy, what you want other people to know about Judy. For all the years she was ignored and pushed aside, 
what were we missing and how can I help make sure that, that that's clear? Um, give me a minute. Um, all I know is that she was a beautiful person. She deserved better. She was taken from a family that loved her so much and from her children who loved her. She was very intelligent, very beautiful. She loved her children and she deserved better. I, I can't change what happened. I can only say that I truly believe she has to be somewhere better. And then I will see her again. And she's my angel now. I want to thank you for listening to this season of Shallow Graves, Judy's story. If you know anything about her death, call the Alachua County Sheriff's Office. And now that you've finished the season, I really want to hear what you think about this case. So give me a call and leave a message at 352-559-5717 or find me on social media. I've actually been putting up pictures and videos from this case on the Shallow Graves podcast Instagram so that you can see what we've been talking about. I owe big thank yous to everyone who participated in this podcast, especially Judy's family. It takes a lot to trust a stranger with your story, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share Judy's. Thank you again to Detectives Kenny Mack and Kevin Allen, my two favorite guys to discuss cold cases with. I'm always grateful for your time and energy, but especially your dedication to cold case victims. And I don't think this season would have happened without my husband, Michael, who has moved mountains, listened to every second of audio a million times, and pushed me when I needed it the most. Thank you for supporting me in absolutely everything, always. And to my sweet Stella James, this one's for you.